0: You may be seated. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 10 as we do continue to go through the Word of God in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, as you'll remember, is the longest of the minor prophets, as uh, Haggai was sent to castigate, in one sense, to chasten the people of God for their failure to uh, complete the temple. Zechariah was sent the younger of the two prophets to encourage the people of God in their work and to give them the precious promises of God that would sustain them in that work, letting them know that the Lord's plans for them were good and that there were good things coming. Uh, Zechariah is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. Uh, Because it is so full of messianic promises, Uh, we remember that last week we uh, we were talking about that wonderful promise regarding the Lord riding into Jerusalem. Uh, We were told that our king is coming to us just in having salvation. One of the themes that I hope you will have noticed by now going through Zechariah that occurs again and again is that promise. The king is coming. That promise was fulfilled when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. When the son of God took upon himself our nature and then died for our sins. The king came to his people, Emmanuel, was truly born of a woman, born under the law at exactly the right time. Emmanuel meaning, of course, God with us. And now we're going to read some more precious promises of God, but uh, before we do so, let us go to the Lord who gave us that word and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, we confess that if it weren't for your help, we would not be able to understand your word at all. Your son Jesus lamented that the Pharisees searched the scriptures. Indeed, they were constantly reading your word, and yet it remained a darkened book to them because the light of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit was not present within them, and because they refused to see your son Jesus spoken of as coming and to see how Christ fulfilled all of the prophecies that the uh, detailed instructions of the prophets gave to your people. Now, Lord, we come once again to read one of those prophets, and we pray, Lord, that our eyes would be full of light. We know that whenever your word is being preached, we're in the midst of spiritual battle. We know our great enemy, Satan, wants to snatch away the word as it's falling. He doesn't want it to do any good, but we pray, Lord, that as the seed is sown, that it would find that good soil in our hearts and that it would produce uh, a many-fold harvest within us. We want, O Lord, to know more of Christ. So we beg you, Lord, be the light of our hearts and our minds. Help us to know him and to love him and help us to meet him within your word now. And we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Zechariah chapter 10. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter and I would encourage you to read along with me. This is the word of the Lord. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies, then tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people, wend their way like sheep, they are in trouble because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goatherds. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle, From him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler together. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside, for I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased." I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the things that frustrates children most, there are many things, of course, that frustrate children, particularly when their parents don't do what they want, but uh, there are times when... Uh, Children become frustrated with their parents because they have made a promise to do something that they want, something that they really want, but the parameters of that particular promise are indefinite. So perhaps a parent will say to their child, whose eyes light up at the coming of this promise, we will go to Carowinds. So the kids run to the closet and they grab their jackets and And the parents say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not now, it's winter. The park isn't even open at the moment. I said, we're going to go. I didn't say we're gonna go right now. Well, then the child looks at them and says, aw, well, when then? When are we going to go to Carowinds? And the parent looks at the child and says, eventually, eventually we will go to Carowinds. And the child looks at the parent and says, that means never. No, eventually does not mean never and so on. The next day comes and they once again look at you and say, are we going to go to Carowinds now? And you say, no, and they go, aw. And then the next day, are we going to go? And it keeps on going like that on a regular basis. Well, I say that because believe it or not, there's something similar that happens when it comes to prophecy in the uh, Bible as we've been going through These sermons of the prophet Zechariah, these sermons that were given originally to the people in Jerusalem, the returned exiles, we see a lot of precious promises given to the people of God. Now, we know that prophecy is more than just foretelling, more than just telling what's going to happen. It also involves foretelling. The word of the Lord is given through his prophets to his people. He tells them the truth. And the Lord has much to say to his people, but he does have promises for the future. The prophet is giving the Lord's assurance to the people that things will happen in the future, things they long to see happen, things perhaps that seem too marvelous for them. It's not just a promise to visit Carowinds in one sense, it is a promise to dwell forever at Carowinds, a place that brings joy and pleasure and happiness to the heart constantly. The people of God are being assured by God that a day will come when all the things that make them sad, all the things that oppress them, all the dangers that they face, all the terrors that they struggle with will be gone. But the critical question to anyone listening to those promises is is when? When will it happen? Now, this is not something that is singular in Zechariah or the Minor Prophets. This is something that the people of God have struggled with in every age. When, O Lord? For instance, when Jesus and the disciples came to Jerusalem, the disciples who were from Galilee, which was kind of a backwater, didn't have many grand buildings. Indeed, the grandest building they would have seen, most of them, would have been the synagogue. But they were amazed, therefore, when they came to Jerusalem and they saw the beauty of the temple complex, particularly the the new temple that Herod was building, this temple that was said to be so radiant, it shone at a distance. It seemed to be gold and ivory, glittering as the people would go up to the feasts, truly magnificent. And they pointed it out to Christ. We read in Matthew chapter 24, And starting with verse uh, verse one, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now hearing those words, although it seemed impossible that such a mighty edifice, such a beautiful building as the temple would be destroyed, they accept that that would happen but when will it happen? And that's their next question. In verse three, we read, uh, the disciple now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now notice that the disciples there presume in asking that question that if the temple is destroyed, then that will signify the end of this present evil age and the advent, the coming in of the age to come. They assume that the destruction of the temple will be part of the final judgment, that this will close human history in its fallen sense and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. But often, as in that prophecy and the prophecies that we read in Zechariah, there are multiple fulfillments and long ages Separate the events that are prophesied in these prophecies. For instance, most people in Israel thought that the coming of the Messiah and the day of the Lord, that is the the final judgment, would come right on top of one another that they would be almost coterminous. Even John the Baptist, the last, and Jesus tells us the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the one who pointed the way to Jesus. You remember, he was the one who pointed to Christ first and declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He assumed that when the Messiah arrived, all that was left to be done would be that final gathering in of his people And then immediately the Messiah would bring in the final judgment. And that's why he preaches in Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But having said those words, then John the Baptist found himself arrested and thrown into Herod's dungeon, languishing there, and he surely should have known that eventually the day would come when Herod would overcome uh, his superstition and he would put him to death. Herod would be willing to, to, to kill this man of God. Uh, well, languishing in that prison, John began to wonder if the final judgment isn't happening because I'm sitting here and the people of God are not free and triumphing over their enemies. Is Jesus, the one I pointed to, really the Messiah or is he yet another forerunner? So in Matthew 11, 1, we read, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now in answering John, Jesus doesn't merely say, yes, yes, I'm the Messiah, you have little faith. Hold on. Understand that the things that were promised will occur, not necessarily on the timetable, though that you expect them to. But Jesus doesn't answer that way. He sends him words that would immediately have taken John's mind back to Isaiah and what was said in the prophet Isaiah about the days when the Messiah came. In Isaiah 35, three, it reads, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert." The things that were written of in Isaiah are being fulfilled. Many prophets did wonderful works in the Old Testament, but not one of them opened the eyes of the blind. That was something that was left for Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, God with us when he came. And indeed, he was doing that. And so he points that out to John. The problem that John, of course, had had was he didn't realize that there were so many things that had to happen before the final judgment could come. Now, what John said was true. The winnowing fan is in Christ's hand. The day is coming when he will call upon the angels to gather his elect sheep, his elect wheat, we should say, into the barn and then to burn up all of the chaff that remains. The day of judgment is coming, but not before the Lord came to bless his people, to bring them the gospel, and then to gather in. Sheep from all the nations. The gospel had to be preached to the ends of the earth and the elect from the nations gathered in before that final day of judgment. And here in Zechariah 10, the Lord made promises, wonderful promises to his people, but those promises were not going to happen immediately. They weren't going to, to come to pass immediately upon those, those promises being made. In some cases, most of the things that were promised, for instance, in Zechariah 10, did not come to pass until many generations after the people who originally heard these sermons were dead had passed by. And in some cases, the, prophecy, uh, the prophecies that we find in Zechariah 10 have not yet fully come to pass. But we know this, they will, all of them, in fact, we see several of the prophecies that are made in Zechariah coming to pass even now. You, brothers and sisters, are an evidence of the gospel going out to the nations. We are very glad, are we not, that, that the, uh, the final judgment did not come in immediately after the death of Christ. It would not have given time for us to be born and to be brought into the kingdom of grace to have an opportunity to stand around the throne worshiping the Lord. You were born to such a time as this and you were saved in the midst of this time. But we know there's a time coming when everything will be set right. Zechariah assures us of that. And all of the prophecies we remember of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. They are coming to pass. Well, Talking then about specifically the prophecies in this chapter, they fit into two major themes. In verses two through five, uh, we see the promise that the terrible leaders or the shepherds of Israel who weren't really shepherds, that they would be replaced and that there would be a good shepherd who would come in. And then in verses six to 12, those verses concern the promise that the Lord would gather Israel together once again, that he would restore his people, that they would once again be a multitude and that they would be without number. Now, looking at the first of those promises, the Lord himself speaks of their leaders, the leaders that they had before, obviously coming up to this point, and the leaders indeed that they had at this point as terrible under shepherds, hirelings, who didn't actually care for their flock. Now, a good shepherd is one who loves the sheep, who's willing to lay down his life for the sheep, who leads them beside the still waters, who finds good forage for them, whose concern is for those sheep. A bad shepherd is one who doesn't care a thing about the sheep, he sees the sheep merely as a source of revenue and of income and he is willing to shear them mercilessly. Now, while the Persians were better leaders than the Babylonians had been, still they did not care much for the people of God, obviously. But a time was coming when good leaders would be brought in and indeed the best of leaders. Now, the shepherds that they had had before Uh, The shepherds who had essentially caused them to be thrown into exile had told them the lies that they wanted to hear. And we know that the leadership had listened to false prophets and spread about false dreams. They told the people things they wanted to hear. For instance, prophet uh, after prophet had stood up and said that the exile would be, would be foreshortened. The people would be brought back. Babylon would not take over the, uh, uh, Israel. They told them all of these falsehoods and they did more damage than good. False prophets in the time of Jeremiah had given them hope that they could resist Babylon. You remember the message of the Lord was surrender to Babylon. They are my rod. They are my instrument of chastening you. Stop resisting my will. It'll go worse for you if you do. Jeremiah brought them that truth. But false prophets came up and said, no, no, no. No, you will be able to resist the Lord, uh, the Lord's will in this. In fact, the Lord's will is that you would resist Babylon. His temple is in the midst here. Egypt will help you. He made all of these false promises. And as a result, the people resisted and died. So many of them died as a result of that, that false preaching. False preaching and promises are poisonous and they were to God's people. And that's not just true in the time of the Bible. We were watching... Uh, uh, Joy and I, just a little while ago, uh, a, uh, a message from uh, Johnny Erickson Tata that was actually given at the Strange Fire Conference. And she related how, uh, as you remember Johnny Erickson Tata, you probably uh, know who she is, but I'll, I'll just recount. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata was a, uh, a young woman who at the age of 16 jumped into a lake. Uh, her head hit a rock and her spinal column uh, was severed. And as a result, she spent has spent uh, all of her years since uh, she was 16, I think she's 58 now or maybe older than that, I I think probably older than that, Um, she spent all of those intervening years as a quadriplegic, unable to uh, do the basic things that uh, we consider we take for granted. She, when she was younger, was taken to a miracle healing conference that was put on by a woman by the name of Catherine Kuhlman who was As she put it, the Benny Hinn of her particular age, of the the 1960s. And she so hoped that she would receive healing. And, of course, there were those words, those promises of healing available to everyone who had enough faith. Uh, She found, though, when she arrived at the conference that they immediately wheeled her into the wheelchair section, which was not under the spotlight and the people who were who were miraculously healed were not the people in the wheelchair section not the people who were had visible problems that couldn't pass away it was people who had those those problems that uh, you could not see with the naked eye who supposedly were healed and so the spotlight kept going from person to person that never came to the wheelchair section and then she was wheeled out before the end of the uh, of the miracle healing crusade with all the other wheelchair cases to the elevators and her heart at that moment was bitter, bitter, bitter. She said that those false prophecies made her simply want to die. She asked her sister to wheel her into her room, put her in her bed, close the the blinds and just let her die. That's what false prophecy does. It offers false hopes, things that the Lord never promised to his people. And when they aren't received, they turn their back. They say, "I don't believe at all." That's happened again and again in Christian history. Many of the cults that we uh, we struggle with these days, uh, particularly the Jehovah's Witnesses, came out of a uh, a cult a cultic movement called Millerism. A fellow by the name of William Miller, a Baptist, uh, preached that he knew when Jesus was coming back. He was coming back in 1846. And thousands, millions worldwide believed this false prophecy. Uh, They were called Millerites. And of course, (coughs) did Jesus come back in 1846? No, of course he didn't. So William Miller went back to the books and instead of saying, I've made a terrible error. The Bible says I shouldn't be setting the date of Jesus' return. Forgive me. Go back to your churches. I've, I've, I've misled you. Instead, he said, I got the date wrong. It was 1847. Let me ask you, did Jesus come back in 1847? No, he did not. And so literally tens of thousands of people who had followed him, who had left their churches, who had sold everything they owned, turned their back at that point on Christianity. Many others went off seeking other false shepherds. And like Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the cults grew by leaps and bounds because of those false promises. But the Lord speaks of a time when there will be no more false promises. We remember that he is the source of all truth. How did Jesus describe himself? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he indeed was the one who came to bring the truth to his people. But the Lord said that they would no longer be as sheep without a shepherd. The Lord himself would visit his flock. Now, as I said, Prophecies have multiple fulfillments. There was uh, the fact that, that that prophecy, that the Lord would visit his people, it was uh, first fulfilled with the restoration of the temple. We remember that the temple was the visible evidence of the Lord's presence in the midst of his people. That was where the, the sacrifices took place. It was essentially the, uh, the meeting house where God and his people met in the midst of the nation. The nation would be restored. Indeed, it was. Many of the exiles were brought back and increased But at the same time, it was not a full fulfillment. We'll talk in a moment of that full fulfillment of when the Lord visited his people. But at the same time, he also made promises. The Lord said that he would strengthen his people for battle. That seemed impossible at the time when this promise was given. We remember that these were an afflicted people. They were surrounded by nations that hated them, that were constantly attempting to interfere with them. But the Lord said that they would be strengthened. They would be made ready for battle. They would put their enemies to shame. And this was a prophecy that was indeed fulfilled in the time of the Maccabean Revolt. But that too happened 350 years later. All of these things that were prophesied came to place, but most of them, or came to pass rather, but most of them did not occur in the lifetime of the people who originally heard them. That promise, of course, that the one who is the Lord their God, God with us, the, the fact that Jesus came was a fulfillment of that great promise. And we remember that the Lord, when he came, he came as the good shepherd, Looking upon his people, his heart was grieved. We read in Matthew 9 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. But Jesus would be the shepherd of his sheep. In John 10, and starting with verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and have known by my own. I want you to see, and I hope you do, that in the ministry of Christ, Particularly, Matthew is zealous to show us all the ways that Christ was fulfilling these prophecies. Why? Because those prophecies were not just made for the people in the time of Zechariah. And they weren't made for the people in the time of the Maccabees alone. They were made for you and I, brothers and sisters. We can see the way that all of these prophecies were made and then came to pass or are coming to pass. Now, regarding the restoration of the nation, speaking of our coming to pass, the Lord says, He will whistle to them. And this was the way that a shepherd would whistle to his sheep and they would come running to him. Uh, Believe it or not, there was a time before shepherds used sheep dogs and they actually used instead of training the sheep dog, they would train the sheep to recognize their voice and to recognize the calls that they had. Uh, I am told that there are actually still trials in certain parts of the world where they don't use uh, sheepdog trials are wonderful to watch. But they are actually trials where the shepherd shows his mastery of his own sheep, that they hear his voice and they come running. And the Lord says that that day is coming to his people when his people will hear his voice, know him to be the good shepherd and they will come to him. Now, this prophecy of the return of the people coming back from the nations in which they were in exile, places like Assyria, places like Egypt, that was partially fulfilled, of course, with all the multiple returns from exile that occurred. They started, of course, with the the first uh, freeing of the people from Babylon when Persia took over and Cyrus released the people. But gradually, people began coming back to the promised land. But when this promise is or will be fully fulfilled also depends upon your theology. For instance, if you are a dispensationalist, and dispensationalism is the majority report in the American church, this is a promise that has not yet been fulfilled. It was partially fulfilled in 1948 when the nation of Israel uh, came into being once again, but uh, for the Jews to be brought back uh, in and for the final Um, uh, in gathering to occur that's something that's yet future then there is the reformed amillennial position the position that uh, Calvin takes for instance that this speaks of the church that the ingathering that occurs will be was an ingathering that occurred when spiritual Israel was called by the Lord from all the nations and came streaming into the house of the Lord. We've already seen something like that incidentally with the promise that in the coming messianic age, every Gentile will come and take a Jew by the sleeve and say, and say we, we want to worship with you. We want to be part of the same covenant community. And we saw how the middle wall of separation between the Gentiles and the Jews was broken down, and then there is the post millennial position which says, yes, there will be that, that uh, bringing in of some of the uh, the children of Israel, but that the final in gathering will not occur until the future and Romans eleven the, the time is prophesied when there will be that final in gathering of the people. Uh, and that it will be a glorious turning of uh, the descendants of Abraham to the Lord. Ethnic Israel will be turned back to their uh, their maker. Um, I, both, I, I believe that the amillennial position and the postmill position on this are both uh, certainly in keeping with the word of God. I do not agree with the dispensational position, uh, but nonetheless, we are given this one great assurance that there will be that great in-gathering. I do believe, although I, I I would call myself a millennial when it comes to eschatology, I do look forward to a time when there will be a great ingathering gathering of ethnic Israel when the hearts of the sons of Abraham will be turned towards their Messiah. I believe that that is something yet future, but yet something that we should be working forward or looking forward to and working towards. Um, now, let me give you some applications of the promises that were made. What can a child do to speed up the fulfillment of the promises that their parents have, have given them? What can they do? Well, the answer, of course, I know you're all too humble to say it, is to make supplication unto their parents. To say, O oh, father, O oh, mother, I come to you humbly upon bended knee, and I beg of thee, Take us to the blessed place of Carowinds where I might eat too much junk food and ride on the roller coaster till I throw up. For this will make my heart glad and my spirit sing. Will you not do this for me out of your great love and abundance of mercy? And then the parent will say, all right, get in the car. Or something to that If, if everything goes well and if the child has favor in the eyes of their Lord. Well, the good news is... That all of us, because of what Christ has done, have favor in the eyes of God. And you will remember I said that when we look at Zechariah chapter 10, I started with the promises that come with verse 2. But of course, Zechariah chapter 10 doesn't begin with verse 2, does it? No. It begins with verse 1. And in verse 1 we read this. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the letter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. We would call them thunder clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. The Lord encourages in that verse for his people to pray and to ask him for what they have need of. Now, they were an agricultural people and their lives depended. They they did not obviously have convenience stores, supermarkets or an abundance of stored food and refrigerators. They depended upon the harvest and the harvest in that particular area of the world depended upon the rain. If the rain came at the right time, then they would be blessed. But if it did not, for instance, they depended upon what were they called the latter rains, the rains that came in March. The first rains that caused the seed to germinate fell in October and then they needed the March rains to cause the the crops to sprout and then be fruitful. And if that rain did not fall, then they were in trouble. The Lord encourages them, pray, I will give you that harvest. But he's talking about more than just food here. He's talking about a spiritual blessing. And that too, brothers and sisters, depends upon prayer. Now we serve a sovereign God who does what he wants, but we note that the Lord has said again and again, he's called upon us to pray. He has made prayer the means by which things are changed, by which things happen. The prayers of the saints are efficacious. Are you not told to pray for one another? And are you not told that the the prayers of righteous saints avail much when it comes, for instance, when we're praying for our sick brethren? We know that the Lord has appointed prayer to be a means by which things happen, things come to pass. We note, for instance, that in all of the great revivals, both in the Bible and in history, they were preceded by what? Prayer. What were the disciples doing in Jerusalem before Pentecost, for instance? Praying. They were all together and united in prayer. I've been very struck that all of the great revivals that occurred in American history, they were all preceded by an outpouring of prayer. One of the things that I, I, I note is that we have not had any great res- revivals of late because there has not been, I believe, a great uppouring of the Lord's people in prayer. I believe that's one of the reasons why we are not seeing that blessing. But the latter rain that is promised here is that prayer that brings not only blessing but sanctification. It brings the, the increase, the ripening of the fruit And we need to be praying for God's blessings upon us. We need the sanctifying work of the Lord in the church. You and I need to be praying that all of the things that the Lord has promised will be given to his people. We should be praying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And then expecting that prayer to be answered by the Lord. One of the sad things is that so many of the Lord's people pray without faith. Not believing, perhaps, that the Lord's promises will be given or that, that he will give us what we have need of. So many people go through their prayers formalistically, doing it as a duty, but without any great expectation that the Lord will answer. Or they'll ask for little things and then say that the Lord could not, in their heart of hearts, could not answer the big prayers. How many of us pray, for instance, for this nation without really thinking that a great awakening could occur? Oh, they're too far gone. We're too far in the pit. There's no way that the Lord could could turn this nation around. The Lord has and does turn nations around. He does bring light where there is only darkness. The Lord has done greater things than to turn America around. The Lord saved us from our sins by bringing his son into the world. He overcame the mightiest empire on earth through the preaching of the gospel. He created the heavens and the earth in the space of six days by the word of his power. I don't think changing one nation is beyond his capacity. And yet sometimes I pray like that's the case. I pray without any expectation that these things will happen. The Lord encourages us. He says, pray, ask the Lord. Ask him. How often are we told in the Bible, in essence, you do not have because you do not ask. We fail to pray and then we grumble about the lack. Brothers and sisters, let it not be the case that we are silent in a time of need. Should we be crying out to the Lord for the things that he has promised? Yes, absolutely. We should be praying for not only change in our nation, but change in ourselves. Remembering that reformation begins with us. Revival begins with us. And it needs to begin in the house of the Lord. But also, we need to remember as we trust in the promises of God that many of those promises have not yet come to their full fulfillment. Regardless of when the Jews are going to be gathered in, we know that the day is coming when the Lord will return. He promised that he would come back. You remember in Acts chapter 1, the Lord said to them, When they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel again and again? Is it this time? Is the kingdom to be restored? And the Lord Jesus asked, uh, or rather answered, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that surely came to pass. The Holy Spirit descended upon the church and gave them that, that wonderful power to transmit the message, to do miracles in Christ's name, to authenticate the scriptures that they were laying down, and then to carry the message beginning in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And that is indeed happening. The Lord has promised. In fact, the angels rebuked the disciples and after Jesus ascended, you remember, they kept staring up into heaven and they said, why are you watching, you know, waiting as though he's gonna come back immediately? Oh, you know, I'm coming back right now. No, no, they said he will come back. Just as he ascended, he will again descend. We are told with a shout and with the sound of a trumpet. That day is coming. But what were they to be about? They were to be about the work of preparing for that day, gathering in the sheaves. That is what you're to be about as well. We have these great and precious promises that are made regarding the Lord's return, the ingathering of Israel, all of those wonderful promises the undoing of all the enemies of the Lord, that day is rapidly coming. Trust in the Lord's promises. Know that these things will come to pass. Know that these promises are good. They are all yea and amen. But in the meantime, work and more especially, what should we be about doing? We should be about praying. Let me ask you, as you begin a new year, to make prayer a priority in your life. And I ask you, I really do, pray for big things. Pray for this neighborhood, not just a few individuals, that they would be brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then pray for the city. Pray for the nation. Pray indeed for the world, for its turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be in prayer that the Lord would grant that latter rain and that would come down and that we would see an abundant harvest as a result. We pray that the Lord, as Isaiah said, would rend the heavens and come down. We pray that he would do that spiritually and also physically in the return of Jesus Christ. Be in prayer for those things this week, this month, this year. Pray constantly for the return of the Lord. Looking forward to that, knowing that it will surely come to pass. Let's go over to the Lord who's given us these promises. Lord, we confess that like little children, sometimes we are an impatient people. We want all of the promises to be fulfilled now, now, now. We ask for immediate sanctification. We ask for immediate change, immediate revival. We ask for everything to happen yesterday, Lord. But we know that everything is proceeding according to your timetable, that things will not happen before the time you've appointed. And yet, O Lord, you appointed prayer to be a means by which that timetable is fulfilled. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be active Active not only in the process of the building of the kingdom, the ingathering, of the sheaves, but also in, in prayer. Make us prayer warriors coming to you constantly. You've told us to ask. You've told us to pray. Therefore, if we don't, we're not, we're not uh, fulfilling your command, Lord. I pray that you would make us, therefore, a prayerful people and a people who are fixed upon the promises that you've made, knowing that all of them are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy